This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. I'm Sam Sachs. I am Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of Lonnie's Discount Muffler and Ribs Studio in Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. All day long, the House has been considering the impeachment resolution against President Trump. Looks like that vote won't happen until this evening. They might even push it back till tomorrow. But uh, that's happening right now. Not much to report on other than the uh, typical arguments we've seen Democrats and Republicans make for the last several weeks in response to this. So a lot of the same. I was was a little surprised at one point. um, Nadler, Congressman Nadler, asked for a uh, procedural unanimous consent request. And I was really surprised that uh, not one Republican (laughs) tried to force them into a uh, motion to do a roll call to approve of it. Yeah, we've seen uh, them do that a couple times, though, today, where they've tried to trigger unnecessary votes to slow down the process. We had Liz Cheney earlier today. Instead of doing a regular open vote, she wanted to do a House roll call vote where every single member's name was called and they had to stand up and say their vote on camera. Um, which, as we talked about, could hurt Republicans as much as it could hurt any Democrats. Um, and it would also take a very long time, but that was that was voted down or uh, objected to and not considered. So uh, I, I think based on how much debate was left, a vote at the earliest won't be until after 5 p.m., closer to 6 p.m. And if Republicans put forward any more delay tactics, Democrats might just delay it until tomorrow. It is definitely a historic day by definition, but I, for one, have just felt nothing but emptiness today. Well, that's because you're (laughs) blackpilled. Partially, partially. But there is some logic to this, which is that we knew going in that Mitch McConnell uh, was going to try to, to just rush this through the Senate and minimize whatever already small chances there are of the Senate actually convicting him. And with the articles that have been brought by the Democrats, one just sits there wondering what kind of actual pressure is going to be put on Republicans in the Senate to consider conviction. Because this whole story just seems to be, yes, there are... um, There are election implications. They are serious ones. But why not lump it in with everything else? Pelosi has been talking about this. We've been talking about this for for a long time. And, you know, I was saying this on Twitter this morning. It really just seems like Pelosi is just going through the motions, trying to do my, oh, you know, like satisfy people to my left by at least putting impeachment forward. But also just completely pandering to the right and making this all about, oh, NATO, national security, uh, you know, a, a, a dipshit centrist figure like Joe Biden. And if you think about all the other things that that Pelosi and House Democrats could have added to the articles, self-dealing, white nationalism, uh, sexual assault, sexual assault, etc., the pressure on these Republican senators who 
some of them are already going to consider voting to convict because it looks like they're going to lose. Thinking about Susan Collins and Cory Gardner, the pressure on them is now minimized because of this very narrow impeachment that Pelosi put through and all the stupid, insipid fucking rationale she had. Oh, we're we're just going to keep this laser focused. This is something the American public can understand. Well, I'm not one to say that, you know, Republicans, uh, anything they say is really that legitimate, but I find myself sitting there hearing some of their arguments about, about specifically about complaining about how narrow this is. And I'm thinking this is going to play pretty well for their, for, for Republican sympathizers on the news and people who aren't so put off by them. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not sure. uh, I'm not sure this is going to impact the outcome of the 2020 election to benefit Trump, but it's just, it all just seems so very cynical. And I really just cannot summon one ounce of energy uh, to be excited or to recognize the history or whatever. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And I'll just repeat what I've said on this show several times, which is that the only really good argument against impeaching Donald Trump is that you can't trust Democrats to do it right. Yeah. And we're seeing that played out now uh, with the choice to focus on this narrow scope of impeachment. I do think that uh, there are a lot of weak arguments that I've seen against uh, impeachment from people on the left suggesting that, oh, Democrats are wasting their time impeaching the president when they could do actual resisting. It's like, have you paid attention to what Democrats were doing before impeachment? They were approving all of Trump's nominees, confirming or confirming Trump's nominees. They were approving surveillance authorities for the president. They were doing all this stuff beforehand and they were going to do it anyways. Uh, have Knowing that, to me, impeaching the president is really the best thing House Democrats could be doing at the moment. It's like, what else are they going to do? Pass some small business tax credit <laughs> legislation? Name a, a post office after Jim Comey? Like, what else are they going to do? Might as well do something that fucks up the president's agenda, causes him to go insane, and potentially creates some political blowback on Republicans who have to stand up and support the president, despite what he did. And yes, that's become a lot easier because Democrats have have made it such a narrow focus. I am a, a little sympathetic to the idea from the left that impeachment is pointless because it is uh, you're basically trying to follow the Constitution and the Constitution sucks shit. But if we were to follow that argument to its logical conclusion... We should really be stockpiling arms uh, somewhere in the mountains right now <laughs> because if we're, we're going to try to use uh, whatever tools we have and, and work through the system, which um, I feel like punching myself uh, in the dick just for saying that. Yeah. Then we got to entertain impeachment as a thing. Yeah. And at the very least, consider impeachment as a congressional check on runaway executive power that we've seen over the last several decades where Congress has shirked any responsibility it's had in an oversight role or to uh, check the power that's grown in the executive, particularly during the George W. Bush administration. 
I know uh, a lot of people who have written about and talked about increasing executive powers who've been concerned about that stuff, people like Glenn Greenwald, uh, oppose impeachment. Um, to me, you can see impeachment as a way of remedying these things in the long run by just Congress stepping up and using some of its power uh, against the executive. It, it was pretty funny hearing certain members earlier today say things like, oh, impeachment is not something we should take lightly and it is comparable to declaring war, which the Congress has the power to do and it is also something we don't take lightly. What are you fucking talking about? Congress hasn't bothered trying to de declare war or to use its war powers uh, since 9-11. Yeah. Last, last bit I'll say here is there's also this electoral argument that's been deployed against impeachment that really we should just wait until the elections, which is what Republicans are arguing a lot. And you've seen a lot of leftists use this argument, I think, because they're confident in Bernie's ability to win uh, in 2020. Um, I'm just saying maybe we shouldn't be so confident about an electoral outcome in 2020 that can solve this problem. Given that our electoral system is so completely fucked up, we've had in just the last 20 years uh, an electoral system crowned George W. Bush, who lost the popular vote, and the Supreme Court confirmed that. We've had Donald Trump, who lost the popular vote by millions and still be crowned president. We have nationwide efforts to kick people off of voting rolls. So there's a lot of problems with our elections that we shouldn't just be like, oh, well, our elections are our last hope or our best hope to, to solving this mess. It's not true. Also, this is the result of elections. In yeah. 2018, the voters gave the House back to the Democrats, presumably because, guess what? Uh, a lot of people in this country really fucking hate Trump and are sick of all this, of, of all his shit. And uh, this is an expression of elections having consequences. Yeah. It was, a, it was a pretty big wave. All right. It's Wednesday, December 18th, 2019. Here's the news. As someone who salivated over ribs on yesterday's show, I feel ethically compelled to cover this one. Federal meat inspectors are warning that rule changes by the Trump administration will put consumers of pork at risk. NBC reported the existence of two whistleblowers yesterday, Jill Maurer and Anthony Vallone. They have already filed complaints with the Office of Special Counsel, an agency overseeing whistleblower complaints across the entire government. According to the pair, the new regime could impact 9 out of 10 pounds of pork consumed in the U.S. The initiative in question is called the New Swine Inspection Program. Per Maurer and Vallone, it will reduce the number of federal inspectors at pork processing plants from seven to just two or three. And also the program will limit inspectors' hands-on interaction with pig carcasses, hindering their ability to actually inspect meat. Pork producers have been able to apply to the program starting this month. A pilot version has already been rolled out at five meat processing facilities. NBC said nine inspectors at these plants have also already raised concerns similar to those raised by Maurer and Vallone that the changes will lead to pork being contaminated with stuff like fecal matter, genitals, bladders, toenails, and hair. Of the likely impact, Maurer conceded some uncertainty, though in the worst possible way. She said, quote, if this continues across the nation, when you open your package of meat, 
What you're going to get for a pathogen is going to be a mystery. Bringing a new meaning to the term mystery meat, I guess. Valone, meanwhile, said, quote, It's so hard to go to work without feeling physically sick watching this just happen unfolding in front of you. We might have to hold off on the ribs for a few years. No rib birthday candles for you next year, Sam Knight. I'm sorry. Unless I travel to Canada or Mexico or something. The currently right-wing National Labor Relations Board issued a ruling on Tuesday that will make it more difficult for workers to organize on the job. Siding with business groups including Caesars and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the board overturned a prior ruling during the Obama administration and found that workers actually don't have a right to use their work email to discuss union-related activities. Got to avoid Caesars on your next trip to Vegas there. Yeah, fuck that. I'm not going. The partisan board agreed with businesses' argument that they have a First Amendment right to determine how their own email systems are used. Love that corporate personhood. And therefore, employers could restrict email use in any way they see fit, just as long as it doesn't look like they're exclusively targeting union activity. (laughs) 2014, the NLRB ruled the opposite, that if a company offers email services for work-related activities, there's a presumption that employees have the right to use it for organizing. It was one of several pro-labor regulations set during the Obama era that have since been dumped by the Trump administration. The NLRB voted 3-1, with member Bill Emanuel refusing to recuse himself from the vote, despite his litany of conflicts of interests in most labor rulings. Before joining the NLRB, Emanuel worked at a law firm, Littler Mendelssohn, representing corporate clients in labor disputes. Last year, several senators, including Warren, Hirono, Booker, and Gillibrand, wrote to the board urging Emanuel's recusal in this case. He opted not to. Sorry. Can't recuse, got to make it harder to unionize. The dissenting NLRB member, Lauren McFerrin, blasted the majority's decision on Tuesday, writing, quote, There is now a long and growing list of decisions by the majority whittling down statutory protections for American workers who hope to organize a union or to improve their work lives. Like the others, the decision here is not simply bad policy, it is arbitrary inconsistent with the requirements of reasoned decision-making, end quote. By the way, McFerrin's term uh, expired. I think that was maybe the last decision uh, or dissent, I should say, that she issued. So now there are no Democrats right now <laughs> on the uh, on the labor board. I uh, have to double-check the quorum rules to see what they can do. I uh... Nope, three members are a quorum. So that's all it takes. (laughs) All right. With the impeachment floor debate this morning, we were on the lookout for sneaky statement releases from federal agencies. The timing of this one is certainly funny on its face. The FTC announced a final settlement this morning with the ex-CEO of Cambridge Analytica and an app developer who worked with the company. The agency had alleged that Alexander Nix and Alexander Kogan engaged in deceptive practices by falsely telling the users of a Facebook app that the app would not collect their personal information. Per the New York Times, the Trump administration gained access to this ill-gotten info, which covered sensitive predictive information about some 50 million users. The company, which declared bankruptcy in 2018, had deep ties to then-candidate Trump, 
Cambridge Analytica was financially supported by far right wing actors like Steve Bannon and billionaire Robert Mercer. For their role in this mass fraud, Kogan and Nix agreed to destroy any personal info they illicitly collected, and they also agreed to stop, quote, making false or deceptive statements regarding the extent to which they collect, use, share, or sell personal information, as well as the purposes for which they collect, use, share, or sell such information, end of quote. So, in other words, their whole punishment for one of the most notorious illegal acts of deception in the modern era they promise they won't do it again. Also, Democratic members of the commission approved of this. The settlement was unanimously supported by the FTC. Any wonder why President Trump thinks he's above the law? I feel like the FTC is constantly making these deals where these companies agree not to do it again. And then we're right back here in a few years with these companies once again agreeing not to do it again. Finally, this isn't news to many of you all, but the so-called American dream is dying, if it ever existed. This is especially true for millennials, according to a new Government Accountability Office report released on Wednesday. GAO looked at economic prospects for millennials, defined as folks born between 1982 and 2000, putting your two co-hosts firmly in that cohort, and it's not good. The oversight body found that in comparison to prior generations, Gen X, born between 1965 and 1981, and Boomers, born 1946 to 1964, millennials are in a much rougher fiscal situation. GAO looked at the generation's 25 to 43-year-olds and compared their status to prior generations at the same age. And here are the results in a snapshot. Quote, Millennial households were more likely than other generations to be college educated. However, incomes have remained flat across the three generations, implying that millennials have yet have not yet benefited from the potential additional lifetime income earned by college graduates. The report goes on. Millennial households had significantly lower median and average net worth than Generation X households at similar ages. Median net worth for the lowest quartile of baby boomers in Generation X was around zero, but it was substantially negative for millennials, mm. indicating that debt was greater than assets for the median low net worth millennial household. Also, quote, a significantly lower percentage of millennials owned homes compared to previous generations at similar ages. And, quote, millennials were more likely to have student loan debt that exceeded their annual income, end of quote. On the issue of economic mobility, the idea that individuals can move up the income ladder without the aid of having rich parents, GAO found that it no longer exists. The share of people making more money than their parents at the same age has declined over the last 40 years, and the chance of moving up the income ladder has been flat over, the, over that same time. 40 years ago, 40 years ago, that takes us back to the election of Ronald Reagan, and while capitalism has always been theft, we entered a hyper stage of it when Ronald Reagan took the White House. Looking at this report, it's no wonder why more and more millennials are turning to socialism. Yeah, it's not like capitalism was not theft during the Keynesian years. There was just uh, they just redistributed the theft. Yeah, the capitalists <laughs> did a better job of hiding how truly destructive their system is. Now it's. All bets are off. Let's do it. All right. That music means the newscast is over. 
Time to move on to the poetry portion of our show. All new subscribers on Patreon, patreon.com slash District Sentinel get not only access to all the bonus content we put out and access to the garbage can proceedings, which start tomorrow where you can get your garbage can nominations in and then we'll throw someone in the garbage can on Friday subscriber only show. But subscribers also get their own haiku written for them and read on the air. This one goes out to blushing cowboy emoji. (laughs) The company man takes no breaks, shits at his desk on company time. Thank you, blushing cowboy emoji. Yes, thank you, blushing cowboy emoji. And thank you to all the new subscribers on Patreon. Again, that's patreon.com slash district sentinel. One message to get to here on the listener rant line. Hey, Sams. Uh, it's Astro, as in Astrologica, and just sort of expounding on what uh, your caller the other day had. Um, I once had employer-provided health care through, I think, United Healthcare, and uh, my story is one time I, I paid months and months into it. They took like $120 out of every paycheck to pay for my portion, so whatever my employer didn't pay, and then I got sick. I got pneumonia, and I went to a place in network, and the fun story is that it would have been $60 had I paid out of pocket and pretended I didn't have health insurance, but they said, oh, it'll only be $20 if you use your insurance, and that was fine, but then I started getting bills, like, in the mail, and they were charging me, like, $20 at a time, $30 at a time, and when all was said and done, because, you know, not to cover me because they couldn't prove I was that sick despite chest x-rays proving that I had like double pneumonia uh, I ended up paying about $150 for using the health insurance that I paid you know $120 a month for so uh, I don't have employer provided health insurance anymore because it doesn't do anything and so I just wanted to say uh sort of a solidarity thing. It's like, Devin, I totally understand why you don't pay for health care because it just doesn't do anything. So I also wanted to thank you guys for having such a great podcast and uh, thank you for the haikus. Okay, bye. Thanks for the call, uh, Astro. Um, another nightmare story of the American healthcare system. And I hate hearing these stories from people, but I think it's important to talk about them so that people know that they're not alone or that they're not a failure uh, as they're trying to deal with the system and constantly failing at every turn. The term Kafka-esque is thrown around a lot these days, but it true that story, that anecdote from Astrologica, truly Kafka-esque. Yeah. And the fact is, is that insurance companies will try to squeeze as much money as they can out of anyone, whether or not they're in the right or not, because there are just a certain number of people who who won't push back, and I fully understand why they wouldn't. Why would you want to spend any uh, more time than you have to on the phone with these fucking people? So it is, it is, it's legalized theft. It's it's awful. If you have a story that you want to share on the show, call the rant line 202-684-6108. Leave a message. We will play it on air. 
That'll do it for District Sentinel Radio today. Thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow. We're here in D.C., so you don't have to be.